Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. One Saturday morning in July 2016, two women met in a crowded Costa Coffee in Milton Keynes railway station. The cafe was packed, full of mums with young children, families who'd missed their train, business people on the phone... They bought their coffees and managed to find a table. One of the women was a journalist. The other was in the running to become Prime Minister. The journalist brought out her dictaphone and hit record. And the things that were said in the next 40 or 50 minutes would quickly become one of the most famous crash-and-burn interviews in recent political history. And it was all regularly interrupted by fire alarms, crying babies, and people coming over to say, are you Andrea Leadsom? Political interviews set the political weather, the rhythm of our political days and weeks. They come in all kinds, from the pacey morning radio grilling, to the long-form print interview, to the big televised sit-down. They entertain us, inform us, give us a sense of who a politician is, what they're thinking. And ideally, though certainly not always, they help us hold those politicians to account. Then, every so often, they do much more than that. From time to time, a political interview comes along that defines a politician's entire career and even changes the future direction of the country. That notorious motherhood interview between Andrea Leadsom and Rachel Sylvester from The Times in 2016 would, of course, trigger such a flurry of outrage that Leadsom dropped out of the Conservative leadership race, leaving Theresa May as the last woman standing and our new Prime Minister. These interviews are all built from the same basic building blocks, of course. Questions from the journalist answers from the politician. But there's an art to the political interview, and that's what I'm looking into this week. I'm diving into the tricks of the trade with some of the best in the business, including one of the most experienced producers in political TV, Rob Burley. What we suspected was that Boris probably hadn't read anything any further. I thought you were a man of detail. Well, you, you, you didn't know whether it was an narrow article or a paragraph. The beloved outgoing host of Radio 4's Westminster are Carolyn Quinn. You can still be insistent and persistent without being rude or sounding cynical. And we have a rare interview with Nick Robinson. Today, programme presenter, podcaster and former BBC political editor. He broke eye contact and started looking at the wall and I frankly lost my temper. And I hear from Andrea Leadsom and Rachel Sylvester separately 
about that notorious interview in that Costa Coffee in 2016. It's a real masterclass, actually, in political journalism and in the motivations of journalists coming into interviews. I'd just sort of written down what she'd said and put it in the paper, and that's journalism, that's not an agenda. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm delving into the world of the political interview and finding out how it really works behind the scenes. Good morning, it's six o'clock on Friday the 12th of May. This is Today with Martha Carney and Nick Robinson. You know the name, you know the voice, and I hope you won't mind me saying this, you know the distinctive bald head and glasses. The later your cancer is diagnosed, the later it's treated, the more serious it is. Nick Robinson is one of the most famous political journalists in the country. He's, of course, a presenter on the Today programme on Radio 4 and the former political editor of the BBC. The man who, for years, was on our TV screens live from Downing Street and, these days, is on the radio, morning after morning, grilling politicians on the issues of the day. Hi. Hi. How are you? Very good. Nice to see you. Well, very good to see you. It's the great man himself. (laughs) Nick came off air on the Today programme at 9am, had some meetings, recorded a football podcast, dashed home on the tube and kindly joined me over Zoom. And I had one question. When did you get up this morning? Oh, I got up at a nice, you know, time of half past three in the morning, actually. What more could a man want, really? In the day-to-day churn of British politics, it is so often Nick who's putting the difficult questions to the most famous politicians at the moments of high drama. You'll definitely remember his interview with Quasi Quarting on the morning after his U-turn on the 45p rate, at the very height of the Liz Truss government's meltdown at Tory party conference in Manchester. Have you considered your position? Not at all. Why not? because I'm focused on delivering the growth plan. The quasi Quarteng interview on the day that happened, I was proud of because the toughest thing to do is to do the... I mean, it's both the greatest privilege, but it's also hardest, is to do the first interview with someone. To do the second interview, you've heard what they've already said, and you can think, if they say that, I'll do that. If they do this, I'll do that. You can war game it. If you're doing the first interview, you don't know where it's going to go. That is a politician's phrase focused. I asked you whether you contemplated resignation. This was things where people had stayed up at night because the markets were moving, thinking, I now can't afford my mortgage payments. I'm now going to have to sell my flat. I might in future. In other words, it was a moment where love politics or hate it, you really cared. And you quite likely were quite angry about what was going on. Uh, and I felt that I channeled that sense of event and drama and anger. Do you owe people an apology? Because they were right and you were wrong. I th- think I was the first to use the phrase. I talked about it being a quarting premium or a, I think it was that. Which was a way of me trying to say, look, it is literally the case that people are losing money directly because of your behaviour and your decision making. I felt that. That was a moment. Making up quotes, lying to your party leader, wanting to be part of uh, someone being physically assaulted. You're a nasty piece of work, aren't you? 
Nick is part of a lively tradition of political interviewing in this country. You would never make the case for rejoining the EU as Prime Minister, is that right? What is your safe and legal route to come to join family members you have in the UK and live in safety? A lot of people in this country use prescription painkillers and pills to help them get through. Are you one of those people? When you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. I mean, forgetting the fact that you're Prime Minister for a moment, how does that make you feel as a woman? We take it for granted today that our interviewers put the difficult questions to politicians. But there was a time not so long ago when the political interview as we know it today basically didn't exist. An era when journalists did ask politicians questions, sometimes, but it was all terribly respectful. We're going back to the 1950s. It's amazing to remember the deferential nature of political discourse between politicians and journalists at that time. This is Rob Burley, who has spent three decades in political television as editor of The Andrew Marr Show, then head of political programmes at the BBC, and now at Sky News. He's just written a book called Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying To Me? about, you guessed it, the political interview. You know, you may have seen the clips. It's always at an airport. Is there, would, uh, would the Prime Minister like to say anything to the country? <laughs> and, and then they say something. They say, thank you very much, sir. Good evening, Mr Eden. With your very considerable experience of foreign affairs, it's quite obvious that I should start by asking you something about the international situation today, or perhaps you would prefer to talk about home. What shall it be? That's a 1951 interview between Leslie Mitchell from the BBC and Anthony Eden. It's a now-notorious example of good old-fashioned political interviewing. But, thank God, change was in the air for broadcasting. Just as the world was about to head into the swinging 60s, a young former barrister rocked up at the brand-new broadcaster ITN and began to rewrite the rules. From number 10 Downing Street. It's hard to imagine we would have the political broadcast culture that we have now if it wasn't for Robin Day. Robin Day, who would go on to be given a knighthood, his own show on the BBC, and would become known as television's Grand Inquisitor. Good evening. Back in the late 50s, he dared to conduct an interview with the then Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, where he asked some difficult questions. How do you feel, Prime Minister, about criticism which has been made in the last few days in Conservative newspapers particularly of Mr Selwyn Lloyd, the Foreign Secretary. It sounds completely normal today, but back then those questions were groundbreaking, shocking in their impertinence. We have Robin Day to thank for normalising that. He is, in a sense, the founding father of all British political interviews. But he was also the first of the pugnacious, almost rude interviewers probably best exemplified by his famous interview with John Knott, then Thatcher's Defence Secretary. Why should the public on this issue, as regards the future of the Royal Navy, believe you, a transient uh, here today, and if I may say so, gone tomorrow politician, rather than a senior officer of many years? I'm fed up with this interview, really. John Knott stormed off set during that live TV interview, and that phrase, here today, gone tomorrow, would follow him around for the rest of his career. It would be the title of his autobiography and probably the most famous thing about him. 
His heirs are people like Jeremy Paxman and Andrew Neil. Add these two together, that is not a credible deficit reduction package. No, it isn't what I've said to you this morning, Andrew, because you aren't listening to what I've said. I'm going to be said. frightfully rude, but... Yes, and I would, I would, give, you, no I would give you an Did answer. Did you threaten to overrule him? And still, when we think of political interviews, we tend to think of them. But there are different schools of thought to the art of the political interview. And different interviewers strike a different balance between how much to interrupt, to fight, and how much to coax and cajole. I want to be in your seat. I want to ask the questions. Carolyn Quint was a political correspondent for the BBC and a Today programme presenter. But we in Westminster all know her fondly as the host of the Westminster Hour on Radio 4, which she stepped down from in February after 15 years. The style on PM and on the Westminster Hour is much more conversational, it's human, it's treating the interviewee with intellectual equals, if you like. It's not gotcha style. It's trying to elicit information, draw them out and get them to say something interesting. I mean, I think you can still be insistent and persistent without being rude or sounding cynical. And probably that's the style that I prefer. It's it's not the, why is this lying bastard lying to me, which is one of these phrases that's been thrown around for years. Why is this lying bastard lying to me is the mantra of hard political interviewing forever associated with Jeremy Paxman, even though he was actually quoting someone else. I think what we're trying to do is actually get at some kind of fundamental truth about what the predicament, the argument, or whatever it is that the politician in the room is at that given moment. Just like Nick Robinson, Rob Burley started out as a producer for Jonathan Dimbleby. Rob has plotted political interviews with so many of the greats. Jeremy Paxman, Andrew Neil, Andrew Marr, Emily Maitlis, and now Beth Rigby at Sky News. He's developed his own mantra, or guiding principle, for approaching big interviews with politicians. So what I had was this thing I called slightly portentously, what is the truth? Okay, (laughs) sounds a bit wanky, but essentially the idea is... Let's look at this interview and and establish what's actually happening for real. He says every interviewer is different, so it's slightly different preparation for each of their different styles. So with Andrew Neil, it's very much about the document that he takes into the room. So that's literally a piece of paper with a list of questions uh, and evidence that supports those questions. Because here's the thing, it's quite easy to come up with a difficult list of questions. The difficult thing is to then deploy the evidence in the, in, the, in the supplementary question to challenge if that answer is actually untruthful or in some way evasive or whatever it is. So he goes in with all that in front of him. Um, he's very happy to be looking at the piece of paper and reading out his questions. Um, and so the exercise over the course of, uh, of a week with, say, let's say it's a week and it's a big interview, is strategizing the best way to you know achieve what we want to achieve in the interview and then sort of working through the precise nature of the questions. Um, and then he goes in fully armed. Andrew Neil likes a document with the questions in bold and the facts he'll need for follow-up questions underneath in small print. Teams of researchers go into the archive, looking at what the politician has said on the subject before, digging for uncomfortable facts and stats and contradictions. Andrew Neil passes that document back and forth, back and forth, a minimum of six times until the questions are honed perfectly. And unlike some interviewers, Andrew Neil is partial to a bit of role play. And you, yeah. you talk in your book about sometimes doing the role play with yes. with Andrew Neil. What's that like? 
great. I mean, it's it's really fun. <laughs> Not a bit terrifying. Well, obviously it's terrifying. I mean, it's ter- <laughs> obviously by, all the time it's terrifying. So they've drawn up their plan of attack, written and rewritten questions, role-played how it's going to go. Then they go into battle. Well, I think there's a whole load of things that are going through your head, actually. Have a rough structure, but don't stick to it rigidly and listen to the answers. Have a few previous quotes or or things that they've said or contradictions to hand. Is someone listening or watching at home getting what they want out of this interview? Am I putting the questions that they would want to hear posed? Stifle your own emotion. You can be sceptical, but not cynical. The interviews I hate are a list. You know, let me ask you about this and then that and then the other. There is a trick which some really good interviewers have, which is very short questions. And don't forget, your producer's in your ear the whole time. You're guiding them through. You're just, just carry on. Keep, keep going with that. Don't leave this. Forget the plan. Because there's a plan and then there's, the, there's a battle plan and then there's the battle. So very often, the preparation goes out the window once the politician is there in the hot seat. But sometimes, just sometimes, it all does go exactly to plan. Only recently you claimed that we could leave on no deal. We knew in all the interviews that Boris Johnson had done in the run-up to the 2019 leadership election that the conversation was was often about no-deal Brexit, do you remember? Every day. It was all about, you know, what would happen if we didn't do a deal with the EU, what would happen to our trading arrangements. Boris, like a student, you know, in a seminar who's a bit hungover, you could go into the room with one thing he'd mastered, which was the GATT Treaty from 1947, I think it is. To agree under GATT 24, paragraph, paragraph 5B of that treaty, which said, it's fine, we can carry on trading on the same terms. Boris had mastered that. Well done, Boris. But what we suspected was that Boris probably hadn't read anything any further, because that's what those people do, right? They don't understand the whole thing, they just understand the little bit they need to get them through to look good in the seminar but the detail is going to elude them so we danced him down that road come along come on down five we know, i know you want to go down 5b he wandered down the road with us happily and andrew made uh, andrew neil made a slight error in terms of the, the paragraph and so he was delighted at that he sort of he said you know the detail right andrew it's article 24 paragraph five the hubris was just magnificent and that led us to the point where we got to where we wanted to get which was to say what about 5c that everything stopped for a moment as it sort of sunk in that he was being asked about 5C. And of course, you know, Boris hadn't bothered working out about 5C. Confide entirely in paragraph 5B, which is enough for our purposes. No. I thought you were a man of detail. Well, you, you, you didn't know whether it was an narrow article or a paragraph. But and he tried to make it a joke, but it just absolutely revealed what we were trying to do, which was that, you know, he was being blithe about the consequences of no deal Brexit. Ducking and weaving, dodging and pivoting. Sometimes the lines that politicians were given by HQ get ditched on the spot as the politician scrambles to find better ones that are less embarrassing. I couldn't find any current politician willing to admit, on the record anyway, to using carefully honed tactics to avoid answering the question. But luckily we have Matt Hancock in an unguarded moment in the jungle describing the art of what we call the pivot. I've got like 20 years of answering the question I want to answer, not the one that was given, right? Blair used the word look, right? He, he, people would ask, ask a difficult question. Oh, yeah, I can hear it say, now. And he would say, I can hear it. And he would say, look, what I came here to talk about was my marvellous programme of some, such and such. I mean, in, in, in politics, it's called the pivot. And you... <gasps> 
So there you go. Pull off a really good pivot in a high-profile TV or radio interview and all your politician mates will be impressed. And I've got my hands on a media training guide from an organisation that gives coaching to politicians and business leaders and actually sets out a proper guide to the pivot or the bridge. You can start with something that sounds a bit like an answer, like, I don't know about that, or that's not how we see it. Then you pick a bridge, like, if you look at the facts, or our view is, or, and what's interesting is, and then you go to the key message you actually wanted to deliver that isn't an answer to the question at all. So you can mix and match your own pivot, something like this. Well, I don't know about that, but if you look at the facts, here's my key message. So how does a journalist navigate an interview with a politician who's been carefully coached to pivot away from the question? Well, the only real technique you can use is to point it out, is to put up in lights, to flag, if you like, to people listening or watching, did you see what just happened there? I asked this and I got an answer about that. And then you've got to calculate how much time do I want to take up and how much value is there in asking the same question more than once. But sometimes there's value in the theatre of just dwelling in the absurdity of a politician who won't give you a straight answer. Did you threaten to overrule him? detail before the House of Commons. I note you're not answering the question whether you threatened to overrule him. In that famous Newsnight interview in 1997, Jeremy Paxman asked Michael Howard, then the Home Secretary, did you threaten to overrule him 12 times? Did you threaten to overrule him? Rob Burley spoke to Paxman about that famous TV moment while he was researching his book. He said to me, in the end, you just get tired of the bullshit. Did you threaten to overrule him? Nick Robinson had his own moment of frustration with a particularly evasive interviewee back in October 2021. So Boris Johnson came again into a conference studio at uh, a Tory conference. Now, he had snobbed lots of interviewers, as you know well. He had taken a lot of persuading to do the Today programme because for a while he and Dominic Cummings ordered the government to boycott the Today programme altogether. And I'd spent quite a lot of time before that interview talking to people near to him and close to him saying, look, can we just do a proper interview? Can we just like be grown-ups about this? And trying to discuss why he didn't like doing it and what I could do to make that a better experience. One of the things I asked for is that he came into the studio a little bit early. Previous interviews, he'd sat down as I was introducing him, which is hopeless. I mean, I wouldn't talk to you without saying hi and just something to be a bit sociable. So he did come in, to be fair, a little bit early, which allowed me to say, which I do in interviews, and I don't think there's any controversy. I never tell them the questions, but I might say, look, we're going to talk about education for a bit and then we'll do the economy. I mean, just literally the broadest of broadest. So they've got a sense in their mind. They don't have to rush to get an answer out on one thing because they don't think I'm going to come to it. He ignored all the prep, all the conversation. He started to read off a piece of paper. He then, as I'm waving my hands about, which you can do in radio to try and say, please stop, let me get to the next point. He broke eye contact and started looking at the wall. And I, frankly, lost my temper. I just thought, you're not playing the game at all here. And I said, and, and it's going to be a good thing. Stop talking. 
we are going to have questions and answers, not where you merely talk, if you wouldn't mind. Now, well, Which was a bit of a shock to people listening, and I think to my team and to me. And I've quite often said that I regret saying it because it looked discourteous, it wasn't planned, it looked like a loss of temper. Actually, loads of people have gone up and said, we cheered when you said that because we knew he was waffling and being evasive. I suppose the only reason I'm not happy about it was I... I like to be in control. And briefly, I thought I was doing something where, though it was reasonable, and in a sense, it was just meant to be the equivalent of a kind of bucket of water over the head. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't like it because I don't want people to say that I don't respect people in high office, because I do. That's an example, I think, of the way lots of people discuss on social media how your interviews have gone. There's a constant debate about you and the other most prominent political interviewers about whether you've interrupted too much or too little, whether you've been tough enough. Do you pay any attention to that? A bit of me just says there will in every interview be a group of people who think you should have, quotes held them to account, right? Which basically means you should interrupt them more or you should say they're lying or it's not true. And there's another group who say... I'm trying to listen and you keep interrupting and this is awful. And that's just life. Generally, the people who think you should interrupt people are the people who didn't agree with the person doing the interview and the people who think you're interrupting too much did agree with the person. And you're just like, whatever. I asked him if he worries at all about politicians not just dodging questions, but actively lying. What, you think there was an era in which politicians told the unalloyed, unvarnished truth? You don't think it's got worse that there's a new relationship with the truth among our current crop of politicians. You couldn't live in the era of Donald Trump. You couldn't live in the era of Boris Johnson without realising that there are people who are willing to say things that, um, shall we put it delicately, have a, have a, a tenuous link with reality at times. Of course that happens. And it is the job of journalists to point that out and to challenge it. What I'm arguing is that the interview will die if people kid themselves that what interview should really be about is a politician saying something and then the interviewer saying that's not true, repeatedly. I mean, what will happen if that is the model or alleged to be the model for good interviewing? I'll tell you what will happen is, first of all, the politicians think there's no point in me going on there. Why would I do that, right? I'll just broadcast directly myself. Secondly... The public will get to the stage where they don't believe anything from anybody, ever. Thirdly, the role of the media, which is to help people understand the choices that they face, that disappears. And we have a dialogue of the deaf. Coming up after the break. There are moments where my mouth has dropped open at the contradiction between what's said in private and what's said in public. Oh, and don't forget this. So I said to her, do you think that being a mother makes a difference to you in politics? I didn't have alarm bells. I just felt uncomfortable. I just wanted to move on. Stay with us. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rustolium. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. You might imagine that what you see on screen or hear on the radio or on a podcast is all there is to know about the relationship between the politician and the interviewer. They turn up, answer the questions, we hear them be thanked for their time and then they leave. That's it, until the next time. Now, it is sometimes the case that a politician and the interviewer hardly know each other. But a lot of the time, there's a whole complex human relationship behind the scenes. First of all, there's the delicate dance of even convincing the person to give you an interview in the first place. But also, most of the big political interviewers today have spent their careers in the lobby in Parliament, and they know the people they're grilling really well. I put that to Nick Robinson. You know, I've been a political editor or reporter for, for, for years and I took a conscious decision to step a bit back. Now, I still know a lot of them and I sometimes chat to them and that I think has value for people because I have a better understanding as a result. But, that you know, what you don't want there to be is a sort of conflict in your mind between your relationships off air and your relationship on air. Are you struck by how different some people are on record to off record? Are there times when you think that's not what you said over coffee a month ago. I know you don't mean that. Do you have that experience, Matt? There are moments where my mouth has dropped open at the contradiction between what's said in private and what's said in public. I'll give you one example, and I can only do it because, bless him, he's no longer here to defend himself. Paddy Ashdown, when he was leader of the Liberal Democrats, one of the biggest stories I did as political editor was the hung parliament after the 2010 election and five days of debate about would the Tories do a coalition? Would they do a, um, some sort of governing arrangement? Or would Gordon Brown be able to pull it off? Paddy Ashton, I can now reveal, rang me up to tell me something. And I was at home as I am now. And I went straight on the Today programme as political editor then to reveal what I'd heard, which was a juicy bit of information about the Lib Dems and the Labour Party, but obviously not saying who I'd heard it from. What I didn't know is that the Today programme had booked Paddy to come on straight after my two-way, in which he said the words I will never forget, I don't know who Nick Robinson's been talking to, but that's not true, when I had literally quoted him. (laughs) Because he needed to get the idea out there, and then it had to be deniable. Now, that is a particularly shameless example. 
I think all of us in the lobby know the experience of watching or hearing a politician say something on air we know from lunches and coffees that they don't mean a word of. But sometimes the best interview moments come from cultivating those relationships off air and then persuading them to go on the record, as Carolyn Quinn describes. There's a lot about contact building and building up confidence in people which then makes them come to you when they have got something to say. For instance, somebody like Graham Brady, chairman of the 1922 committee, on something like the lockdown over COVID, he was privately at first very frustrated and angry about it. And he'd said to me that, you know, we're becoming like a totalitarian country with all these lockdown rules. And I thought, "Mm, totalitarian country. Mm, Good line, good line. So I did the interview with him. It was um, a pre-recorded interview that was going to run on the programme. And initially, he didn't seem to bring forth the totalitarian word. Um, But I, I was able to say to him, something, having had the previous conversation with him, that brought it out. So uh, he, he said if these kinds of measures were being taken in any totalitarian country around the world, we'd be denouncing it as a form of evil. But perhaps the most fascinating example of this complex human relationship between politician and interviewer was Brian and Margaret. Brian Walden and Margaret Thatcher were friends and ideological bedfellows. He had been on a journey with her, from Labour MP to Thatcherite broadcaster, convinced by her arguments and fascinated by her. He would do sympathetic, meaty interviews with her on his big Sunday politics show, where a lot of her ideas were shaped and thrashed out. He would meet her privately for drinks in the number 10 flat and discuss politics, a kind of closeness between journalist and prime minister that a lot of other people in the lobby in Parliament disapproved of. Walden even, astonishingly, once wrote a party political election broadcast for her while working as a broadcaster who regularly interviewed her. But fast forward to 1989 and Thatcher was in trouble. This is Rob Burley. You know, she was pursuing the poll tax. She was deeply unpopular. We have become a grandmother. People would have seen the moment when she came out of Downing Street and said, we have become a grandmother. Called Michael. They thought she was slightly losing her marbles. And then Nigel Lawson dramatically resigned. Thatcher had lost her chancellor and she was in crisis. As fate would have it, at this point, she was already committed to an interview with her old friend, Brian. But she didn't cancel because it was Brian. Margaret Thatcher has problems with strong, independent figures. The pressure was on Thatcher, but it was also hugely on Brian Walden. That morning in the papers, there was a, a, particularly in The Independent, there was a piece which was brutal about Brian, saying that he was essentially a Thatcherite, someone who who could not be trusted to deliver what needed to be delivered, which was the reckoning that Mrs Thatcher deserved, given where she was politically. So the pressure on him to make a choice between his own private ideological views, which were Thatcherite, his own personal friendship with her, and sort of the and what one should do in terms of journalistic ethics was a real choice. It isn't typical. Don't you want to face the future? Of course I do. I do, and I'm ready to face it. In the end, Walden chose journalistic ethics and himself over his political values and his friend Margaret Thatcher. In those 46 minutes, he eviscerated her, and the once impregnable Thatcher began to falter. 
you come over as being someone who one of your backbenchers said is slightly off her trolley, authoritarian, domineering, refusing to listen to anybody else. Why? It's seen as the beginning of the end of Thatcher's grip on power. Within months, she had resigned. Brian, if anyone's coming over as domineering in this interview, it's you. <laughs> it's you. She never spoke to Brian Walden again. Some interviews signal the end of a prime ministerial career. Others prevent one from happening in the first place. So it was in 2016. Let me take you back to that branch of Costa Coffee in Milton Keynes train station. The UK had just voted for Brexit, David Cameron had stepped on as prime minister, and the Tory party was choosing a new leader to steer us through the chaos ahead. After a lot of drama, we were down to the final two. The Home Secretary, Theresa May, and a junior minister, Andrea Leadsom. And while May was clearly the better known of the two, Leadsom was the only Brexiteer, and she had won the hearts of a significant number of the all-important Tory membership. Potentially I was within weeks of becoming Prime Minister. And here she is. And so yes, I went along to that interview absolutely exhausted after the previous few weeks. But then I was asked by one person on the team, just do this couple of interviews, nice get-to-know-you things over the weekend. What was your childhood like? What do you believe in? That sort of thing. And um, I took that at face value. So we had arranged to meet. This is the Times' Rachel Sylvester. And at the very last minute, the whole thing was changed to a Costa coffee shop in Milton Keynes railway station but that's where she'd wanted to do it people were interrupting every few seconds to say oh are you andrea ledsom you know and the whole thing was slightly chaotic so there they were in that coffee shop they started the interview it was all going fine and then they got onto the subject of motherhood and that's where their recollections diverge i remember i asked her what's the main difference between you and Theresa May. And she talked about she came from this big family and that, you know, she had children and that was very important. And then I remembered that during the Brexit debates, she kept using this phrase about how she was back, backing Brexit as a mother. And it was, it was sort of peculiar. It really slightly jarred and jumped out. It was, what's it like being a mother in politics? And I gave an answer. So do you think that being in a, a mother in politics really helps you? So I gave another answer. So do you think being a mother makes you a better politician? And so out of courtesy, you're trying not to just answer in exactly the same way. I didn't have alarm bells. I just felt uncomfortable. I just wanted to move on. So I said to her, do you think that being a mother makes a difference to you in politics? Does it make you do politics differently? Because she had kind of put that front and centre during the Brexit debates. And she said uh, that she thought it did, that she thought it gave you a, a real stake in society. It made her grounded and normal and that it, made, it gave her sort of understanding and an empathy of how other families live. I mean, I think the transcript that was used, I actually am protesting. I really don't want this to be a reason for anyone voting for me or not voting for me. Theresa May had just only the week before, a couple of weeks before, talked about her own sadness at being unable to have children. So in that context, it completely changed the tone and the meaning and the emotion of the thing. And it just came across as a little bit mean. I didn't really think of it in news terms. But when she got back to HQ and discussed it with colleagues, it was very clear it was a newsline. 
The Times headline read, Being a mother gives me edge on May. Leadsome. Tory minister says she will be better leader because childless Home Secretary lacks stake in future. Late at night when the interview dropped, Andrea Leadsome took to Twitter. This is the worst gutter journalism I've ever seen. I am so angry. I can't believe this. How could you? I was. I remember I was out at dinner with friends and I'd switched on my mobile phone to order an Uber. Suddenly I was trending on Twitter for the sort of first and only time in my life. And I, I, I couldn't work out what was going on. And then I actually thought, oh my goodness, maybe I've misheard or misunderstood. And I went back and listened to the tape. Spent all night virtually listening, making sure I hadn't made a mistake. Uh, and I hadn't. It was all there. And I'd just sort of written down what she'd said and put it in the paper. And that, that's journalism. That's not an agenda. The Eurosceptic energy minister who's exciting traditional Tories. But the mum of three is facing criticism for an interview in The Times where she suggested being a parent made her a better choice for prime minister. As the pressure grew, Leadsom dropped out of the race to be our next prime minister. You know, I take it on the chin. It was my naivety, my lack of experience. The interesting thing actually is um, the two interviews I did, one with The Times and then the other one with Alison Pearson, um, they both pretty much asked the same questions. But when you look at the two articles side by side, it was very clear that one was very skewed to, you know, winning a, a big political hit for the journalist and the other one was genuinely trying to shed a light on a candidate so inevitably I had a big target on my forehead you know I'd been a absolutely passionate supporter of leaving the EU it's a real masterclass actually in political journalism and in the motivations of journalists coming into interviews it's just completely not true there really wasn't an agenda There was a sort of conspiracy theory from some of her supporters afterwards that this is all part of some sort of Remainer plot, you know, because the Times had backed Remain and uh, it just wasn't true. I was going there as a journalist. Uh, I prepared. I was um, really professional about it. Uh, I was really interested to hear what she had to say. She said those things about being a mother and how that gave her a stake. And that's that's her responsibility. Do you feel like a mum in politics? The actual recording of that interview from Rachel Sylvester's dictaphone, released by The Times in the storm that followed, is on Twitter, so you can make up your own mind. So I don't want this to be Andrew's got children, Theresa hasn't. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that would be really horrible. But genuinely, I feel being a mum means you have a very real stake in the future of our country, a tangible stake. You know, I mean, she possibly has nieces, nephews, you know, mm. lots of people, but I have children mm. who are going to have... Rachel Sylvester won Political Journalist of the Year for that interview in 2016. For her, it's a lesson for those who underestimate the power or jeopardy of a so-called soft interview. People sometimes think that a sort of more human interview is somehow softer or easier or a kind of like a fluffy option but actually I think often the most human uh, bits particularly with a politician are the most revealing and because you know they can have their very well prepared answers when it comes to policy but when it's about them and their character that tells you 
often a lot uh, about what they're like as a person. And that really matters in politics, particularly if you want to be a leader. Andrea Leadsom went on to have a cabinet career, of course. But a lot of people around Westminster would say that she never really recovered from that motherhood interview. Politicians seem more terrified of interviews than ever before, more scared of something like that happening, of letting their guard down or saying something vaguely human in an era of social media clipping. The issue these days isn't just whether politicians answer the question, but whether they give an interview in the first place. Boris Johnson was so desperate to avoid interviews during the 2019 election campaign, he even hid in a fridge. I'll be, I'll be with you in a second, I'll be with you in a second. Yeah, I have an earpiece here in my hands, ready to go. Right, he's been taken inside, into the freezer. He's gone into the fridge. And Liz Truss didn't go as far as to hide in a fridge, but she was no different. She agreed to give Nick Robinson a big televised interview during the Tory leadership campaign. But then, after Rishi Sunak did his, she pulled out. So I asked somebody, why won't you do it? And I was told, the problem with modern interviews is they are clip, 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 snip, 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 share, share, share. By which they meant more people would watch the little clip of their politician messing up than would ever watch the original interview. And the fear they had was that presenters, people like me, were only interested in those clips. Sometimes critics of interviewers about why don't you do this or why don't you say that, forget that it is a voluntary process. Nobody is forced to do an interview. And the big change in my career, moving from three TV channels and no internet and no social media to where we are now, is that Not only do they not have to do an interview, which was always true, they now have many more options as to how they communicate. Not just rival channels, but rival media, if you like. Are we in a landscape now where actually there's just much less incentive on politicians to sign themselves up for a really tough grilling? And are you worried about that? Yeah, I think that is a difficulty. But I think we always have to live with the world that we're in rather than with with a nostalgia for a world we've left behind. You know, I did grow up in an era in which Margaret Thatcher saw a value in facing what you call a grilling is not a word I much like, actually, but in doing long form interviews in which she explained herself because she believed being seen to be tested, she thought had real value for her. I think Tony Blair came to that judgment later, that actually when he was unpopular over Iraq, he suddenly realised that doing long interviews in which you could throw anything at him, there was actually just a value in people hearing him face those allegations and not necessarily being persuaded by the answers, but realising he did have answers of some form and that he didn't look horrified and shocked by the questions. I have tried quite hard to say to a lot of politicians, look, in the end, this works for you as well as for me and well as for the audience, if you're tested. Politicians cling to their pivots, spending their whole careers answering the question they want rather than the question they were asked, as Matt Hancock puts it. And the interviewers, too, are under constant scrutiny for being too tough or not tough enough, 
it can sometimes feel like a thankless task on both sides. And you might have thought that more TV channels, more radio stations, media outlets online and social media would be good for the political interview. But one byproduct of this changed media landscape is that politicians don't have to endure a tough interview to get their message out there. The free market of political interviews now means media outlets are competing to persuade politicians to pick them, and the politician can favour those with, sure, the biggest audience, but also those who will give an easier ride. Or they can bypass interviewers altogether by going directly through social media. The power balance has shifted in the politician's favour. And while it might be a little bit too soon to be proclaiming the death of the political interview, there have been certain moments of late which make you wonder where it's all going to end. Boris, how'd you chill out? I've got a project which is to, to master the form of the cup. So the cow, <laughs> cows are actually far more difficult to, to draw. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word, follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to past episodes, including Aggie's episode on the secrets of TV news. My producer this week was Eve Streeter of Whistledown Productions and here at Politico my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.